Hey everyone, welcome back to Seeking Witchcraft. I'm your host, Ashley, and today I have on special guest, Mab Borden, who is here to talk about how to celebrate ancient holidays in the modern world and to discuss her upcoming series of books on this very topic. So Mab, welcome to the show. Could you please introduce yourself and give the listeners a little bit of background? Hi, I'm excited to be here. I'm Mab, and um, I'm, I know this is going to be a shock to everyone listening to Ashley's podcast. I'm a gardenarian high priestess. Oh my um, goodness! And we've never had one of those on the on the show. Um, no, nope. but uh, I I'm also Alexandrian, and I also practice Hellenic Reconstructionism, which is um, celebrating the gods and traditions of ancient Greece. Um, and I my academic background is in classics, which is the study of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. So um, I, I wrote. The, these three books um, that are coming out at the end of February. It's a series of ancient holidays. And um, there's coming out in February, there's ancient Egyptian holidays, ancient Greek holidays, and ancient Roman holidays. Um, so each of them goes into the specific festival year of that particular culture. Awesome. So what I guess I should ask to, to start with, what inspired you to delve into this research of ancient holidays in these three places? So as a pagan generally, and as a reconstructionist, I do feel like this is something that's kind of missing is this connection between the modern pagan world and ancient paganisms. So when I was in college, I took a class on Judaism. And it was like such a great course. I learned so much. But of course, Judaism is this massive, massive topic. And so, you know, we just focused on what the professor was interested in. And her research was in esotericism. So we learned about Kabbalah and we read Tales of the Baal Shem Tov. And we also read some Talmud. And, and we spent a lot of time talking about like the Jewish people culturally and how did the people living in Israel under the Roman Empire become you know, the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim and, and all of these different aspects of Judaism and Jewish belief and Jewish culture. And I learned so much, but I came out at the end of that semester and realized that I actually had no clue what Jews do religiously. Like I had some idea of, of various theologies from very specific communities at various historical points, but like we talked a little bit about the Sabbath but I could not have told you about Sukkot or about Rosh Hashanah or, you know, anything like that. I did not have any sense of what does it actually mean to do Judaism. And so, and I think that many people really do, most people probably really do connect to their religion specifically through festivals and specifically through holidays. I mean, think of like how many people don't attend church regularly at all are not particularly convicted in any kind of belief. That belief might be very vague, but they still go to midnight mass for Christmas, or they still go to church on Easter to make grandma happy. And that's not really about belief for many people. In fact, belief is a pretty secondary motivation for many people. And it's about identity, and it's about performing who we are as a community or who we are as a family, and re-cementing those bonds and, and re-cementing that idea through shared religious action. And I think that um, as modern pagans, I think sometimes we look at the ancient world and the ancient pagan world through this really narrow lens. And I think that um, ancient paganism is so much bigger and more complex than, than many of us are aware of. And so like, for example, we might read about ancient mythology and try to figure out what people believed or what people thought about ancient pagan gods. And so we're theologizing. And that's actually probably not something the ancients spent a lot of time on or spent a lot of energy on. And you have reconstructionist communities who have like modern pagan communities who have, you know, often over many years, reconstructed many of the rituals from the ancient world in specific pantheons. But those are often built around temple practices that were enacted primarily by priesthoods in the ancient world. And I wanted to focus in these books on how the ordinary person 
might have enacted their religion or might have encountered their gods. And that's really through festivals and through holidays. And, you know, whether you're reconstructionist or not, if you want to learn something about the ancient world, there's just not a lot of material out there for you between mythology books that are primarily aimed at kids and like a gigantic bibliography of academic texts. There's not a lot of middle ground. And so, you know, you can become like an armchair PhD, you know, just to try to, you know, figure out what were ancient people doing, you know, and, and you can, or you can try to infer, you know, theology and ritual and practice from like these sanitized versions of stories, you know, that's like really disconnected from everything else we know, you know, from art and from archaeology about like the actual worship of ancient gods. You know, that's where I really just wanted to dig into what is it the day-to-day people are doing and experiencing and not necessarily get too much into exactly how you reconstruct that. So there are definitely ways to reconstruct that, but this is, the books are not just aimed at people who want to precisely reconstruct the specific ancient rituals. They're also for people who want to know more about what ancient paganism looked like. Because, I mean, I I just think it's important to be aware that paganism was not always part of the occult, right? So we think of now, like, like Wicca, for example, it's part of this this occult milieu where it's so influenced by ceremonial magic and you know all of all of these other pieces because of where we are situated in history. But there might be people who are really interested in neo-paganism and really not into occultism. And you know, and that's fine. And these were ancient pagan cultures, these were mainstream ideas, these were mainstream practices. And I think that it is perfectly valid to look at our spiritual ancestors in the ancient world and say, oh, they did something that's really interesting. And you can maybe, maybe you want to reconstruct a whole ritual. Maybe you don't. And you just think that one practice is really, really fascinating. And you want to find a way to adapt that and pull that into what you're already doing. Awesome. Well, thank you for explaining all that for sure. I have a couple questions. Just, I want to back up for some of the things that you touched on. Um, One of them is mostly for the readers out there or the listeners out there, but you talk about this concept of reconstructionism. Can you explain exactly what this means to people who might not have heard this word before? Yeah. So a reconstructionism is an attempt to recreate or bring back to life as much as possible an ancient tradition, usually like a pre-Christian pagan tradition. So I'm part of a a Hellenic reconstructionist temple. And so they have looked at what is it that ancient Greek people did? And because Hellenic means ancient Greece. So um, Hellenic reconstructionism is trying to recreate ancient Greek religion. And, you know, so they look at what actually happened And then how do we do that now? Because our logistics are really different. And, you know, for example, ancient Greek religion revolved to a great extent around sacrificing animals. And that's just not something that most of us in the modern world are ever going to be comfortable with. So I think that, like, you know, you get into that nitty gritty in the Reconstructionist community of how do we have a meaningful offering for a specific God that is that fits with our modern logistics and our modern ethics and sensibilities and is still meaningful to us and still respectful of the ancient tradition and reconstruct that as much as possible. So for example, processions were very important in the ancient world. And they often, like in ancient Greece, it would wind through the whole city, you know, for miles and then go up the Acropolis, which is this, you know, giant rock above the city of Athens that you have temples on. And, you know, and then you would have outside of the temple, it wasn't really in the temple. So outside of the temple, you know, you would have this sacrifice of an animal and then everyone would eat the, would eat it. It was like barbecue. And so in the modern world, we're not going to have a procession through a whole city. You know, we might circle around the altar as a way of doing that, as a way to have this sense of 
we're leaving our our day to day you know we're not leaving our homes and walking up to the acropolis but we're leaving our day to day sensibilities and moving into a sacred mindset or a sacred space by circling the altar um and carrying with us the tools that we would need to do the ritual just like in the ancient world they would be carrying the various things that they needed they would be carrying baskets of barley and they would be like driving the animals ahead of them and and all of those things they're part of that parade so a reconstructionism is is worshiping ancient gods as closely as is you know really feasible for the modern people in whatever their individual situation is and it often does tend to focus on household practice and and i think that that's that's really important because so many people don't really have a sense of household practice like the big myths that people may have learned in grade school um often aren't like the primary ones in terms of what people are doing day to day but the books that i wrote they're they're actually about like the festivals and and the bigger festivals and i have to say i was actually really surprised i i wrote them from the perspective like kind of with more of an academic hat on not with a reconstructionist hat on because that's not the point of this series. The point of this series is to say what happened in the ancient world and let people take that as what they want. It could be something they reconstruct from. It could be something that's just a source of inspiration. But, you know, it can be used in many different ways. And so instead of like rewriting rituals for the modern world, it's really focused on what actually happened in the ancient world. So let me ask two parts. One, who is this book for? Like, do you need to have a deep understanding of the history of these different places to fully grasp what's discussed in the book? And the second part of this question is, are these rituals or or ideas ex- uh, accessible for uh, solitary practitioners or, or are some of these more tailored for group practices or is there a mix of both? Thanks for asking. I think that's actually really important that these are they're meant to bridge that gap between like Dolaire's Greek mythology written for kids and, you know, getting your armchair PhD. So they're meant to be for people who do not have any real background in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Egypt, the ancient world. So I tell you what, I mean, I don't want to say I tell you what you need to know, because you can always go and know more. These are our massive topics, but you know, I, I, if there's um, a god that's mentioned, I tell you who they are. I contextualize that with the stories that we have about them. You know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the ancient Egyptian holidays books is the seasons. They're just really different because, and people might not know geographically, Egypt is a country on a river in a desert. And so you don't have the four seasons. And I think that that's actually really important because. I think we we have this idea sometimes as modern pagans that the pagan festival year is the eight sabbats. And for many of us, that is. But there are other ways to have a pagan festival year. And in, you know, and people might not live in a place where the eight sabbats make a lot of sense in terms of like the climate. So in ancient Egypt, you have three major seasons because everything is about the flooding of the river. Because until the the Aswan Dam was built in the 20th century, and until then, the Nile River flooded every year. And when the waters receded, all of a sudden, the, you know, the edges of the desert there would be covered with silt. And now you have arable land that you can use for farming, where now you can raise wheat and barley and lentils and onions and, you know, feed your family. So everything in ancient Egypt relied on the flood. And so you have three seasons, you have the flood season, and then you have a growing season, and then you have a harvest season. And that harvest season, like the growing season is actually the winter, which we think of as kind of, you know, I say we, but like those of us who are in, you know, the northern part of the northern hemisphere, we tend to think of that as a dead time of year. But if you're in the middle of the desert in North Africa, that's, that's your growing season. And, you know, the the summer season is the dead season. You pull the crops in before they shrivel in the fields. So it's a, a really different geography, you know, for me. And I found that really interesting and really inspiring. And I, I think that it's really important that, you know, when, when I hear from, from new seekers, a lot of the time people seem to 
lack a sense of knowing how to do things or sometimes they they know what to do but they don't give themselves permission or they don't give themselves permission to adapt something like maybe they've done rituals from a specific book and they don't feel quite right but they, they don't feel like they have permission to just do something and I think that ancient Egypt in particular gives you a lot of permission to make things work for your world if the the eight sabbats do not work for you or you want something in addition to that or you want something else there's it gives you permission to just reframe it around your actual life and your actual climate and your actual physical reality um because you have this beautiful incredibly beautiful i was really <laughs> i have to say as i was as i was doing the research for egyptian i was i was blown away by how beautiful the religion is you have this amazing paganism that persisted for thousands of years that is not based on the eight sabbats and and that can give you all kinds of you know launch pads to to go do something else and to go do something that might be more enriching for you um does that answer your first question yes it does thank you and what was the what was the second question again i'm sorry i forgot oh no 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 so you're good so the second question was about with some of the things discussed in the book, are they focused for solitary practitioners or group practice or like a mix of both? So I think it could be both. Like I said, I didn't rewrite any rituals. I just tell you what did people in the ancient world do? And you could take a practice from that and do it with a group or do it by yourself. So for example, um, there's an ancient Egyptian holiday called Koyak that is about um, the god Osiris. And it's it's very long and complex. It's, it's, you know, over multiple days. And one of the things that they did, though, because it is, you know, just before they start plowing the field. And so they would take soil and uh, mix it with seeds and form it into a little figure and then wrap that up with linen like a mummy because the god Osiris is he's a mummy. He's the god of the underworld and he he rules the underworld, but he's also very strongly associated with the river itself and with the flood and with the fertility of the land. And it's actually, as his body is, is breaking down, that is what is returning the nutrients to the flood water. And so, you know, they would, they would make these little Osiris figurines and there were, you know, there have been so many of them dug up that it's clearly not something that's just a temple practice that people are also doing on their own. So that's something that you could do you know, really beautifully, like at home by yourself, you know, you could like read or listen to the story of Osiris and, you know, make a little, a little seed and dirt person and wrap it in cloth, keep it on your altar for a year to bring, you know, prosperity and abundance and blessings, you know, or you could bury it in your garden if you, you know, grow some of your own food. Or you could also do this as a coven practice. Like that would be very easily done by a group of people as well. And, you know, and, and that's one of those examples of something from the ancient world where you look at it and you're like, I mean, maybe it doesn't come with instructions, but like I could do that. You know, <laughs> like any of us, you know, have, have played with Play-Doh enough that we could make a little person. And it's, I think that it's something that it's surprising sometimes how easy it is to pull things from the ancient world. Like you think it's going to be this really complex project because, you know, sometimes you have to read like 15 books to figure out what they did at like one ceremony. And I just wanted to remove that barrier because so much of what people actually did is really, really accessible to modern people. Does that answer your question? It does. And I love that explanation. Um, I think that's a really cool idea to do, like you said, either with like a group, like a coven practice or just to do on your own. Um, so switching gears a little bit, let me ask you, um, well, I, I don't know, like I have a couple questions I want to ask, but so I'm trying to think which is the best one. Uh, let me ask this because you talked a little bit about like this um, beautiful concept with Egypt, but do you have a favorite ancient holiday that you found while uh you were doing your research and if so like what makes it particularly intriguing or meaningful to you um i do and 
it's just because it's so weird. Like it's not one I would actually do. So what okay. I learned from <laughs> researching these, you know, because my my academic background is primarily in, you know, Greece and Rome. And, and I had, you know, some coursework on like Egyptian archaeology, but not as much. And so I did a lot of research for all three of the books. And what I learned was that the Egyptians are beautiful. The Greeks are more coherent than I thought. And the Romans are just really, really, really weird. The Romans have so many holidays about so many obscure gods that nobody has ever heard of. And that sometimes they, the ancient sources will tell you they don't know who this is or what this holiday is really about, but this is what they do, which I think that is like absolutely fascinating, right? Like most people aren't going to tell you why do we have a Christmas tree? I don't know, but it's not Christmas without it. So, um, you know, and it's that kind of thing. But my, so the Roman stuff is just, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things you can take from Rome and things that you actually can or might want to reconstruct. But my personal favorite holiday is the one that I, as I was reading about it and writing about it, I'm like, this is just so bizarre. So they have the uh, the sacrifice of the October horse is what it's called. And it's in October and it starts with a chariot race and the, the winning horse or the, or the winning chariot, they take the horse that was on because they're pulled by a team of horses. So they take the one that was on the innermost side of the track from the winning team and they kill it with a spear. They sacrifice it to Mars. And then they cut off its head and they cut off its tail and like a runner takes the tail to this special building in the forum called the Regia and like drips the blood in places. And, and then the, the priestesses of Vesta save some of that and they use it like months later to what appears to be unrelated, right? In honor of a totally different God, because the, the stab, the horse race and the killing with a spear indicates that it's probably to do with Mars. And a number of things in October are to do with Mars. Um, he's really big in March and in October. But so the, the head of the horse, though, they they cover it with like they, they surround it with loaves of bread. And then all the men from these two different rival neighborhoods, like come together and fight for who gets the horse's head. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just think this is like the most bizarre like, why do my block parties not look like that? You know, I I would have loved to have been on the planning committee for, you know, what we should do. We should make this intricate experience with a horse's head and a loaf of bread and get the rivals together. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, like when I say the Romans were weird, like there were times that I, I just... I just had to tell somebody about the, the stuff I just read. It was like so weird. And I got like, I think my husband got really tired of me calling him during his work day. He's like at the hospital <laughs> seeing patients and I'm just telling him about random Roman holidays. Like, no, I can't, I can't do that to him. So I'll call my mom and be like, let me tell you about this time that the Romans crucified dogs oh my and God. then paraded them around the city. This is called the punishment of the dogs. Because it was like in honor of this occasion, um, historically, a historic occasion where Rome was invaded and the dogs failed to sound the alarm. But the geese at the Temple of Juno did. And so the geese were like, they would have this parade where the dogs were crucified and carried around. And the geese were like draped in gold and, you know, like carried in honor. And it, it's just, yeah, like the Romans are really, really weird. So the civic holidays in particular, like the, the the ones that are really oriented around like the city of Rome and the history of the city of Rome, you know, more comparable to like, you know, the 4th of July, but in Rome, everything is religious. So um, those holidays um, are, are the really, truly bizarre ones that I, I I'm just going to go out on a limb and say most of us have zero interest in pulling that into you know, a modern practice, but it's still really like interesting, you know, to see what people did and what they based things on. But, um, you know, there are also like, I, I, I feel like I should say something good about the Romans because I mean, they do have some really interesting practices. They have a really beautiful rite in April that is like 
it's practically ready-made for purification and it's um, in honor of this shepherd god and shepherds get up in the morning and they drape wreaths on their um you know on their sheep enclosures and then they have a bonfire and they um drive their animals through it and they leap through the bonfire as well and there's also like a city version of this where people leap through the flames as a purification rite and i think that's really interesting and like using fire for purification is something we see in other paganisms as well but you know this has like specific prayers that that we know and and things where you know someone could like pick that up and do that pretty easily you know and purification in the springtime in like april and may is very common in um in other ancient paganisms as well so this is another source of of information and inspiration something you could do around beltane or something you could do around the spring equinox yeah, I want to give one also, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, the Sacrifice of the October horse is, like, no, that my was awesome. absolute favorite, because <laughs> it's, like, what, it's it's a, it's a what the fuck moment, and that is exactly what I experienced all the time. You know, these are just some of my, my favorite holidays that I learned about while I was writing the books, um, and that I think would be the most interesting and the most fun to bring into modern practice. Awesome. Well, on that note... Rest in peace to the horses that <laughs> gave their lives for the bread loaf and the rivals. Uh, is there any other favorite tradition that stuck out to you when you were doing your research? You know, one thing that did really strike me with each of the three different cultures that, that I was writing about is how they approach their ancestors, because all of them honored the dead. And there are some real similarities between how they do this. So, you know, in in ancient Rome, you know, they go and they, they offer at the tombs of their ancestors. And they also have an ancestral shrine in the house with these wax masks of, of the dead. And they're actually made during life. They're not made like after death. You have it made when you've done something important because now you're worthy of your ancestors. But you would have the shrine and, you know, everything would be like stained with incense and um but it's also, you know, a place where maybe you would have like the particular like robes of office of something really important. So you could kind of brag to people who come to your house. But, you know, you would. So in addition to going outside the city to the actual tombs and burial places and doing offerings and sort of dining with the dead there. Also, the the head of the household would rise in the middle of the night and go to the family shrine with all of these masks of their ancestors and they would turn around they would wash their hands and then they would turn around so that they're facing away from it their back is to the shrine and they would throw a handful of black beans at the shrine and then you know and and they would you know say that they're they're giving them their due or that it's you know some kind of you know appeasing or atonement um, because you know they didn't want ghosts around. So as long as you're like honoring them, then they're not going to like mess with you or haunt you. And then afterwards, they come and they like, um, you know, they wash their hands again. And then they like bang on, on brass pots and stuff and yell at them to get out. Which is like really, really interesting that they're like honoring the ghosts and like giving them something and like now go away like you you know you don't have to go home but you can't stay here and i i think that that's a really interesting difference from ancient greece where they also had the tombs outside the city and they would also go out to the tombs and they would also do offerings to them there that looked a lot like they look a lot like olympian offerings where you know for the olympian greek gods you know they live kind of like in the sky so when you burn something for them, that's how you give them an offering. You burn it and it goes up to them. But you know, the dead live in the earth. So, um, you know, you dig a pit and you pour things into the pit. But then, you know, and, and they're less likely to actually like share that food with the dead. And then in contrast, you have ancient Egypt. Again, you know, Egypt is, is really beautiful. So they would have this, they have this festival called the Beautiful Feast of the Valley. And they had this just like elaborate festival in, in the graveyard. So it's, it's a two day festival and noise making is really essential. And, and they make this like cacophony of noise because it, 
it's supposed to revive the spirits that dwell in the necropolis, which means city of the dead. It's just a graveyard, you know, and that gets them to come out of their tombs and visit with their families. And so people would hold feasts at their their family tombs. And and the tombs are called houses of the heart's joy. And they would they would give them offerings of food and they would give them offerings of flowers. And they would um, statues would be like taken out so that they're like actually sitting with the family. Um, and there's drinking and there's dancing and there's singing and they're burning incense. And, you know, it's all presided over by Hathor, who is called the Lady of Drunkenness. And so, you know, and, and Hathor is specifically associated with wine and especially with beer. And so wine and beer are helping people kind of enter into this ecstatic union with the dead. And the beautiful Feast of the Valleys also when the god Amun, his statue goes and visits it goes and, and visits the the tomb of the living king who is not dead yet, but his tomb is already being built. And so by Amun is a creator god and he's a self-created creator god and his presence is inherently vivifying. And so, you know, by him going into the tomb of the living king, he's renewing the power of the living king and making him again divine. And he's also bringing all of the dead with him and reviving all of the dead so that everyone is is given this this promise of of regeneration through the presence of the god with the dead and i think that's really interesting so so each of these three cultures has you know this going and and you know offering to your ancestors the graveyard and feasting with them but you know they they look different like the romans they're like we're going to give you your due now get out don't haunt us you know the greeks it's it's very much oriented around like sacrifice to the dead and then, you know, in Egypt, it's like all all Egyptian festivals are just like a big party. And all Egyptian festivals have that element of like the God coming out and being with the people. So and, and I think that that, you know, where that difference comes from. But, you know, I think that even though you have this central act of eating with the dead that I think is shared among them you know they look really different so i mean i think like the the noise making in egypt as a way of like bringing the dead to you and celebrating their presence is is interesting as opposed to in rome they're using it to drive out the dead but in egypt they have like they rattle the sistrum is this little like tambourine like instrument and they have this necklace called the menot necklace that like shakes and rattles and it's specifically associated with hathor as well as some other goddesses and it makes this like shaking rattling musical sound and in ancient egyptian festivals so i said that they're all you know like a great party because the temples directly owned you know fields and granaries and directly employed a large number of people and so like the so the temple and the state you go to the the festival and the temple and the state are giving you bread and are giving you beer and are giving you sweets as you're waiting in line often this party is kind of like while you're waiting to see the gods because in ancient egypt the gods are inside the temple and the ordinary people do not go inside the temple and they're really inside the inside part of the temple so most priests don't even necessarily go to that part of the temple where the god dwells but on a daily basis there's a special priest who gets to go in and, um, you know, dress the statue and make daily offerings to the statue. But the statue stays in its own shrine. And on the festivals, what makes the, the festivals really special? So we said, you know, with Greek worship, sacrifice, animal sacrifice is really the central act. Um, in Egyptian worship, the central act is that the God comes out of the shrine and the God comes out to be amongst the people. And so people see the statue of the God and they have this sense of the presence of the God. And, and this is particularly powerful with a moon because he's called, his name means like hidden or the hidden ones so who's called the hidden God. And he's most Egyptian gods really like have a particular place or places where they live. But a moon is considered to be everywhere, like the wind, but hidden. And so this is this time where you get to see this hidden God. 
and and he might go and visit other gods, other temples, travel throughout Egypt. Um, and so this is this this really interesting time where people get they have that moment of you know theophany of being face to face with the gods and they get to ask questions and get oracles and the god is is carried out in a boat because the gods live in the sky and the sky is blue and the river is blue so the sky must be a river so you need a boat to travel across you know it's it's a culture that is situated around a river and there are a lot of really like literal metaphors so the god comes out in his boat and the boat is being carried by these priests that are like the lowest level of priests and when you ask a question of the god some kind of oracle the response is the way that those priests perceive the god to be moving so maybe all of a sudden the boat gets really really heavy or maybe like if the if the head of the boat tips toward you that's like nodding your head that's giving a scent or it might like move forward or move backward, moving away from the questioner is like not a good sign. And so it's it's really interesting to me that there's this this way of having that direct communication with the gods. And I think sometimes, especially in witchcraft, we've developed in neo-paganism this idea that theophany, that like face-to-face experience of the gods, is really important. And, you know, in, in many different traditions that happens primarily, almost exclusively through a possession experience. And that is something that I do not believe is accessible to a lot of people. It's certainly not accessible to like people who are, you know, new on their path or working by themselves that, you know, I know a lot of people for whom that does not feel like very safe or something that they know how to do. And so, or something that maybe that's something that people like don't want to do, but you can have something really similar and you have this precedent for doing something where you have that experience of face-to-face encounter with the divine and you have it through the statue and that the statue is able to communicate with you, you know, in an oracular sense. And I think that's an example of something that you can absolutely bring into modern work i mean you could do it with like a statue and a boat and all that but i think you could really you know invoke a god and ask questions and anything that requires you to sense movement or motion and kind of tunes you into that feeling like a pendulum would be perfect for that you know i think that is a way to communicate with the divine and that's something that can be done by an individual that's something that can be done in a group setting and that is something that you know, lo and behold, was being done like 4,000 years ago. Um, and, and that I think, you know, gave people this really deep and profound experience. Oh my gosh, so much to touch upon there. <laughs> so I I want to, let me ask you this. So when, because I know throughout your books, you're talking about Rome, Egypt, and Greece. Did you approach like any comparisons within your books between the three of them or did you keep them separate or did you notice any similarities as you were going through to write your book, your books? I did notice similarities, but I also really tried to keep them separate because for all that I want them to be a source of inspiration for everyone, I also you know think that they can be a resource for reconstructionist communities as well. Um, and a lot of people in those communities are interested in like one pantheon. And also, I think a lot of people are interested in one pantheon. And if let's say like I'm really interested in ancient Rome and I bought this book on ancient Romans and now you're talking all about like the Greeks and the Egyptians, it becomes like a lot and it requires so much more background information to make sense of. And so I, I really tried to stick to the particular culture that I was looking at, although in Rome that does get sticky because the Romans import so many gods um and they have like this whole explicit system of um you know of bringing in gods that are not actually from italy and and i think that's also important too like i said before about you know permission to do things i think one of the things you need permission for you know is is permission to work with ancient pantheons that are outside your like personal genetic heritage you don't have to be limited by that and the ancients were not limited by that and and they would they would bring in all of these other cults so cult meaning not like scary cult you know but cult meaning like the worship of so 
So I did try to keep them separate. But again, in, in Rome, like I have a whole chapter in, in the Roman holidays book about the cult of Isis, because the cult of Isis was really prominent in Rome. And that's actually one of those places that I think you see you know, the beauty of ancient ritual and the cult of Isis was really prominent in the second century AD in Rome, which is during the Roman empire. And, um, all kinds of like mystery religions were rising up during that period. And so this was the cult of Isis was this initiatory mystery religion. And so like, I, I give you the information we have about it and, and as much about the initiations as we know. And I think that would be you know, a great thing to look at if you're trying to build something that feels like if you're trying to build an initiatory experience that feels beautiful and powerful and transformative, you know, that would be a great source of inspiration for that. But again, that's that's in the Roman holidays book because that's how it was done in Rome and that's how it was done in the Roman Empire and there were temples of Isis in Rome. Um, that's not actually what we know about Isis worship in Egypt. Um, and so that's why it's not, you know, I have some stuff on Isis worship in Egypt in the Egyptian holidays. But so so Rome, it gets sticky because the Romans, um, you know, worshiped everybody's gods that they encountered, really. They, they brought them all in. But, you know, Egyptian is really Egyptian and Greek is really Greek. And Rome is like both Roman in terms of like the the gods that were worshipped in the city of Rome very early, who were primarily these pre-existing like Latin and Etruscan gods um, from the tribes who were living there before the, the city of Rome was founded. And then also the other ones that got added on. I mean, many, many, many got added on over the years. But but yeah, I do, for the most part, try to keep them, you know, really within their discrete buckets, just because I think if you don't do that, it becomes really incoherent for the reader. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely understand why that could get a little uh, wire crossing <laughs> action going on there. So, all right. Uh, let me ask, though, for individuals who might be interested in creating their own modern rituals based on these ancient practices, what advice do you have for how they can kind of like take these holidays and make their own DIY celebrations? I mean, I'm sure a lot of this is probably also dependent on exactly what the holiday is. But do you have any advice of where people can kind of start from, like to start small? Absolutely. In many of them, I I tried to include prayers and hymns to the gods where we have them because I mean I think it's it's interesting. It tells you more about the god or more about the festival. But it's also something that if you're as a reader, you're like, wow, that's actually really beautiful. I really want to do that. All of a sudden, you have a prayer where you can pick up that book, you can read, a, you can invoke that God, read that prayer to that God, you know, as an invocation, offer them some incense, offer them part of your dinner or something. And like, you've just like worshiped an ancient God, you've just started a devotional practice to an ancient God. So, so that's, that's a huge part of why I try to include those. And one of the things that one of the reasons I think Roman holidays is my favorite is um, because I was able to do the translations myself, which I'm really proud of. Uh, my Greek is not, <laughs> my, my Latin is, is pretty all right. But my Greek is not to where I was going to try to do those translations. And, you know, I, I've never studied any kind of Egyptian language. So, you know, I was not in a position to do that with those two books, but with the Roman I was. And, you know, I tried to, like, sometimes I, I condense down longer poems. So if I, if I pull an excerpt, it's often because I was trying to pull the part that I think would be really most useful to someone who wanted to use that in ritual. So for example, um, the poet Horace is a Latin poet who, you know, I pull a lot of things in the book from him. He, we know a lot about ancient festivals from him and we, we pull a lot of stuff from his writing, but you know, he was, he did like do these festivals, but he was himself like pretty much kind of atheistic agnostic at best. But for him, it was about like, this is what you do because you're Roman, not like this is what you do because you believe it. And in his poems, often there might be like something in the middle, all of a sudden he's talking about politics or he's talking about this woman he's trying to sleep with or like something that to the modern reader who's trying to just read this as, you know, a hymn to a God, like that's not going to make sense. And for for Horace, that was actually probably the central part of the poem and, and the you know, the part about the holiday or the part about the gods was probably more metaphor surrounding that. But I did try to like cut that part out because that's not useful, right? Like if I'm trying to pick up a book, you know, to read this prayer so that I can like take this ancient practice, 
and like add a prayer to a God and, and, you know, like bring something into my life. You know, I tried to make that accessible and like having a reference to like Julius Caesar in the middle of it is not going to do anybody any good. So, so I, I did try to make that really accessible and make that piece of it useful. But yeah, I would start with just something devotional, you know, pick like if, if you're really inspired by a particular God, you could read their stories out loud. That's really powerful. Or you can also just, you know, read hymns and prayers to them. And, um, you know, you do that with with lighting incense, with offering food, with offering wine. And, and that is what the core of devotional and household practice looks like, you know, even when you are a reconstructionist, you know, there's going to be a little bit more stuff around it. But mostly, you know, you're you're saying prayers and giving offerings. Um, and that that was a lot of also what, you know, festivals had in them as well. But, uh, you know, so you can take like specific things from specific festivals, but you don't necessarily like have to try to recreate an entire ritual to worship a god in a way that is um, respectful of ancient tradition and, you know, is going to feel authentic. Awesome. I love that. I think that that's a really sound advice. I do want to have, or I do want to ask one more question before we wrap up, um, kind of in the same topic, but I know a lot of ancient celebrations were closely tied to seasonal changes. So how can modern pagans connect with the seasonal aspect of these traditions, even in urban or non-traditional settings? Like how can they have a winter snow themed event if they live in the desert per se? Not that I think there's a lot of snow happening in Egypt, but you know. I know right now in New England, it's been raining for days and I'm like, it should be snow. Um, But no, that makes sense. You know, I would actually say that there are a great many that are not actually explicitly tied to the seasons. And I mean, there are some that are, but I think you, you take what works for you, where you are and when you are. So like there's this Egyptian ritual that's um, a first fruits offering to to Min, who's this phallic god who's associated with agriculture. And, um, you know, you could definitely like do an offering in whatever the first fruits in your season is. There's um, an offering to Artemis the Huntress called the Elaphabulia in ancient Greece. You could totally do that if you're somebody who who hunts, you know, or like you know, maybe you have friends that hunt and occasionally like eat venison with them. If that's part of your life in any way, shape or form, you know, that's something that like at the beginning of the hunting season, wherever you are, like that would be appropriate to make that offering to Artemis the Huntress then. And I don't think that, I I think that you take what works for you where you are. I don't think you have to get twisted up about the ancient dates because, you know, these were all originally like lunar solar calendars, um, which do not add up to 365.25 days. So all of them actually drifted over time and were corrected like multiple times. So like Julius Caesar reformed the calendar in Rome because it was like months like off of what were its original seasonal associations. But I, I think it's important to bear in mind that even though there are agricultural pieces of these, these are actually urban societies. Like ancient Greece is urban. Ancient Rome is urban. Rome was a city of a million people at its peak. So this is like, you know, and you've got in ancient Rome, you've got like gangs and you've got like crappy landlords who are corrupt and, you know, get excited when their buildings fall down because now they have to, you know, build a new building and they can charge higher rent. Like, I mean, and, and you've got like running water. I mean, so, I mean, when, when you're thinking about Rome, like you're not thinking about, you know, like a farmer out in the field, like you, you've got to be thinking about a city because it really was a city. Um, and, you know, it's bigger than mo- many, <laughs> not most modern cities, it's bitter, bigger than many modern cities that we consider cities. And ancient Greece on a much, much smaller scale. But ancient Greece was also an urban society. And and when we say ancient Greece, there's no singular ancient Greece. It was not a unified country until Alexander the Great in the fourth century, like conquered it. But Athens, the city of Athens was its own country. And Sparta was its own country. And Corinth was its own country. And they each controlled some territory around them. You know, that was like where they got their food. But, you know, like the city was the center of the culture and the center of the government and the religions like like just like you might have a slightly different 
version of the Greek language between them. Like they have a mostly shared culture and language, but you're going to have a different dialect of Greek, you know, in, in these different places. You're also going to have a slightly different version of the Greek religion, or you're going to have slightly different gods are really prominent. Like Artemis is really prominent in Sparta and Apollo is really prominent in Sparta. Athena is obviously very prominent in Athens. It's named after her, but you know, it's, you know, but they, they, you know, worship the other gods as well. But, you know, when we think about like ancient Greek holidays, we're really looking at ancient Athenian holidays because that's what we've got. That's where we have the most information. And I tried to include in the book as many holidays from other parts of Greece as I could, you know, and, and there just aren't that many. And and I did put in ev- everything I had, you know, where I could, but it was it was mostly Athenian. But it's not, you know, it's something that like these, if you're living in a city, like that's totally fine. So were they. Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, as we go ahead and wrap up, I guess I should ask, uh, what are some final thoughts or messages that you want to leave our listeners with, especially those who might be interested in learning a bit more about the topics covered today? Yeah, I would say, you know, don't be afraid to try something. Don't be afraid to take something from an ancient ritual to take a practice and run with it. See how it works for you. Don't be afraid to, you know, make a connection with an ancient God. And like I said, I I tried to give some, you know, basis for starting that. But if, if you, you know, do a few prayers or something, you're like, wow, this really, really resonates with me. You know, don't be afraid to reach out to reconstructionist communities. They are out there and they have done that work of saying, like, if you want to take something more elaborate, how do you do that? How do you how do you make this whole thing work in modern circumstances? And and often they have like really particular ritual practices and really particular ways of working that they've developed over the years. And I would say, you know, if you're, you know, if you find that you really resonate with the gods, I mean, this is supposed to be like a starting point. So if, if you find that that's something that you really want to devote your practice to, you should absolutely seek out those communities because they're going to be able to give you the best guidance. And then um, also the big thing is just, you know, just don't be afraid to run with it. And if something seems, you know, inspiring or beautiful, do it, try it, use it. There's, you know, the world's not going to explode if you do something wrong. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, if, if you, what are you going to do? Like mess up words a little bit? you know, in a prayer to Osiris, like, okay, you know, I mean, there's not really a lot to lose. And I think there's so much to gain, you know, from interacting with the ancient world as a modern pagan. Oh, my gosh, I love that. I was gonna ask you your one piece of advice for a beginner, but I feel like you pretty much covered it unless you do have something you want to (laughs) share. But that was a great response. Oh, gosh, for a beginner, I would say just, you know, do ritual, do ritual. That's the big thing. Like when I meet seekers from my coven, a lot of people haven't done ritual and, and just do it like, and it might feel awkward. Right. You know, I I remember like doing sky clad rituals by myself for the first time. And I was like somehow embarrassed to be naked, like totally alone, which is like completely ridiculous, but you know, you have to just do it. Right. You have to just do rituals, even if it feels weird. And, and that's where your practice grows and that's where your experience with the gods grows. And if you feel called to a pagan path, then, you know, it's, there's something there for you and and there's something, you know, really juicy there for you. And and it's okay to just, you know, reach out and find it. It's okay to just step through that door. And and I think it's wonderful that we have so many more resources for finding people, for finding community than we did, you know, when I started out, but it's also, and I think that's really important to seek out community, like really, really important, but I just don't think you need to always wait for somebody else to tell you how they did it. Like, it's okay to just try it, And it's okay if it's not perfect. And it's, and it's still going to be worth it. And it's still going to be fun. And you're still going to learn from it. I think that's a great answer. And I want to expand my support on that as well of just do it. You're not going to mess it up. And if you quote unquote mess it up, it's going to be a learning experience. There's always something to learn from it. And yeah, it will probably feel awkward and that's okay. Cause most of us have all been there. Um, Actually, I don't think any I know anybody who's just like, yeah, the first time I did virtual, well, I, I don't know. Like, it like feels for me, awkward. it was completely amazing, but also awkward. I yeah, mean, you know, yeah. and, and it's, yeah. but I mean, 
no no like I go through phases of this is like a little bit off topic but I, I go personally um you know I've been on this path for a while and I've gone through a lot of phases of you know theologically believing different things or believing more or or believing less in things and you know especially when it comes to magic because I do practice witchcraft and so when it comes to magic you know you it's, it's easy to have this little like doubt in the, in the back of your head at, at points and I just have to let myself be okay with that and be like if I am just having a party in my living room with my imaginary friends like that is okay because I'm still having a fabulous time doing it and my life is still better for doing it and I'm still a better person for doing it and so I think like you don't have to like necessarily find the right thing or the the thing that you believe in or the thing that you you know you it's okay to explore and it's okay if you're probably at some point going to find something that's great for you but it's it's okay if something's not great right like it's it's like dating before you get married you know like you're going to go on some dates that are a little bit weird some of them are going to be fun but not last some of them are just going to be awkward and you know you're going to hope your bestie calls you in the middle of it um and and like that's how it is with craft as well that you know, sometimes it's going to be awesome. And sometimes if you're trying something new, maybe it's not for you. Fine. Try something else. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, Mav, thank you so much for coming onto the show and talking about this topic. And oh my gosh, you are such as like a wealth of information. Uh, I loved hearing you discuss what we talked about today. And I'm really, really looking forward to your books coming out. You said they're coming out now in February, 2024, correct? Yes. Yes. End of February. Awesome. So where can people find you and where can people order your books? Yeah. So they're actually available for pre-order now uh, at uh, thewitchesalmanac.com. They're published by The Witches Almanac, which people typically know from, you know, the almanac that they put out, but they do books as well. So, so you can, you can pre-order them at thewitchesalmanac.com and um, you can contact me at Mab Borden Author. So it's M-A-B-B-O-R-D-E-N and then author um, at gmail.com. Okay, awesome. And if anybody wants to find me, you can find me on Instagram at Seeking Witchcraft, Twitter or X at Seek Witchcraft, which I typically don't really use that often, but uh, Facebook at Seeking Witchcraft Podcast or the Facebook group, which is Seeking Witchcraft. And if anybody is interested in supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Seeking Witchcraft. All right. Well, that is the end of the show for today. Again, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Can I add one thing? Absolutely. I, this doesn't have to make it into the, the final edit. But <laughs> No, no, go for it. So a few episodes ago, I don't know which one it was. I, I listened to it when I, when I walked the dog. Um, and they don't always pop up on my phone in order. So one of them, you, I think it was the, the, woman who does like the mediumship stuff on one of them you know the the ask the butter knife right like you spin the butter knife on the floor oh yeah so (laughs) so i played that game i decided to do this so um for yule my daughter's godfather was in town and um, we decided to play ask the butter knife so my husband went and hid something in the other room and it kept pointing me in the general direction but then like once i was in the room it was like you're on your own and so the new game, because my daughter's godfather is one of those people who's just like extremely psychic. We used to call him from across the country when he'd never been in our house to ask him where things were because he can just like do that. Like he'll just figure out where things are. He's very psychic that way. So the new game is me with my butter knife that doesn't seem to be working real well versus him and his just psychic intuition and like who can get there first. And he's winning every time. Oh my gosh. So I'm disappointed. I'm... Disappointed in the butter knife. <laughs> but I love that you tried that out. I think that's so cool. Oh, and I tried different butter knives too, by the way. So my great grandmother's like silver butter knife did not work at all. My grandmother's silver butter knife did not work at all. But like the regular stainless steel one that was like the one that I don't know where it came from and it doesn't match the rest of my silverware, but it's like in my drawer. I decided that maybe that came to us because it wanted to be like the butter knife. That one worked the best. Still probably not my best like way of finding things, but it still works better than the others. So if you have like a random piece of silverware that just doesn't match, like that's the one to use. It's always like the oddball out or like the underdog tool that like 
isn't always the prettiest that like somehow most of the times will end up having this like huge impact and you're just like whoa where did that come from <laughs> yep absolutely oh my gosh I love that I love that you tried the butter knife thank you so much for sharing that that's absolutely gonna make it into this <laughs> I mean it was really fun like it's called ask the butter knife who does not want to play that game I, exactly I'm gonna keep doing it until I get good at it like <laughs> it's gonna be a thing you gotta play it with your OC absolutely like we do everything with games um you know it's like a teaching tool so because that's how how we were taught so that that's definitely definitely the new oc game oh my gosh i love it <laughs> all right well thank you everybody who's stuck or stayed around to listen to this bonus game oh my gosh i love that you share that's awesome and uh we'll talk to you all next time bye bye